Well, um, I'm so honored to be here. Um, this is a first for me. Um, not a first preaching, but the first time I've ever been to 8 a.m. service and had so many young people in the same service. <laughs> it tends to be the old people's service, but you know, I'm really excited to uh, be here. Um, so I come from a preaching uh, background where preach is not a monologue, it's a dialogue, and it helps sermons to be a lot shorter. So I just love to get a little bit of feedback, you know, um, as we're are uh, uh, sharing the word today. Uh, I heard that John Mark had the longest sermon at like 68 minutes. And so I'm trying not to break that record. So uh, a little bit of help would be good. You know, being a parent can be very challenging. Um, you know, particularly like during a pandemic, you think about it, like a lot of parents were like trying to keep certain routines because things got disrupted. And uh, there was a family that they would... Uh, do a ritual of every Saturday they would have uh, pancakes that they would serve for a pancake breakfast every Saturday. And so there were these two brothers, Timmy and Johnny, and um, they had this tradition that whoever got served pancakes the previous week first, the other brother got a chance to get pancakes served first the following week. Well, being brothers like they are, Timmy and Johnny are going back and forth, and they are like, you got pancakes last week, and then you got pancakes, uh, uh, no, no, I, I, you got pancakes last week. And so the mother, you know, seeing this as a great opportunity for discipleship, she goes and she says, Timmy and Johnny, if you would like to be like Jesus, then you would let your brother get pancakes first. So then Timmy turns to Johnny and says, how about you be Jesus first this week? <laughs> Would you turn to your neighbor and say, will you be like Jesus this week? You know, we oftentimes want other people to be like Jesus instead of us being like Jesus. Even people who do not claim to follow Jesus. You know, I lead a ministry called Erebon. A lot of folks say, hey, what does the word Erebon mean? It's a Greek word that means a foretaste of things to come. The way it's used in the New Testament is that the Holy Spirit is given to the church as a foretaste of the kingdom of God. Well, here's the thing. The world doesn't get the Holy Spirit. What the world gets is the church. And in many ways, we're supposed to be a try before you buy policy. And so you might go to somebody and do some evangelism and say, hey, do you want to, like, um, go to heaven? And they're like, well, do I have to go with you church people? I, I don't know. But what it is is that we should say, no, like, if somebody asks the question, hey, what is heaven like? You should be able to say, hey, come to my church. See some people of diverse economic backgrounds, and they live together as families. See some people of um, different political ideologies, and they live together as families. See some people of different racial and ethnic groups, and they live together as family. That is a foretaste of the kingdom of God. So what Erebon is, is that we are a spiritual formation ministry that equips the American church to actively and creatively pursue racial healing in their communities. We talk about people's communities because all problems are local. You can't fight racial justice on the internet. It really all comes down to the end of the day of what is happening in your local community and how are you showing up in your local community. And so the problem that we spend time focusing on is 
uh, uh, the inability of the American church to, to address racial brokenness in their communities. We oftentimes either have people who, 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 who say, like, they either take the tools of the world and try to apply it and don't really say, hey, well, how does the kingdom of God impact this? Or they might say, hey, there's no problem here at all. Let's just ignore it. And then what happens is we basically create a vacuum that organizations like BLM or, folk or secular thoughts, they fill in that, and then we end up critiquing them. And I think there's something else that we could do. And I just want to just give a couple of, just so you understand where we're coming from, just a couple of contributing causes of why churches tend to have an impasse and address racial brokenness, and then we're going to chop it up in these scriptures. Number one is that oftentimes people try to address these issues, they use shame as a motivator instead of hope. They try to shame people into change. You know, I remember back in 2020, folks would say, hey, uh, you know, they might, a white guy would be like, hey, what can I do? And they'd be like, don't be a rich white guy. Like, all right, I understand you're upset. Okay, okay. But, you know, what, what else should I do? Well, you white guys are the problem. So, you know, you should just go jump off a bridge somewhere or something, you know? <laughs> like, what can I do about that? But then there's also this dynamic where there would be information over formation. Folks will say it this way. Do your own work. Let's do the work. Read a bunch of books. But then what do I do after I read all the books? And there is this faulty presupposition that it's about information alone brings transformation. But as we know, information alone doesn't bring transformation. We need to ask ourselves, how have we been deformed? How have we been malformed? How do we need to be reformed? How do we need to be spiritually formed? And then last is... Partisanship over peacemaking. There is more political discipleship going on than biblical discipleship in this area. Within two minutes, you oftentimes can tell whether or not somebody's um, getting their worldview from Fox News or if they're getting it from BuzzFeed. And those are the only two options. You either need to be anti-woke or you need to be anti-racist. But I think that there is a way that is a third way that's a kingdom way. And this is what our ministry is about. And so I would love to read a, a quote from a cultural critic who um, said something that I think is really relevant for the moment that we're in. He says, but the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Every day I meet young people whose disappointment with the church has turned into outright disgust. Just by show of hands, has anybody seen this in their communities or in our world, our present time? Does anybody have an idea who said this? This was Dr. Martin Luther King in his 1963 letter from a Birmingham jail. You would have thought that this was written in the Atlantic last week. But this was written literally over 61 years ago. And what Dr. King was really trying to help 
the body of Christ then that was saying like, hey, they didn't have the woke language, but they could have said, hey, you're being too woke. Just, just, just let it pass within this time. Like, like just let things be. This, you're not doing the work that ministers ought to be doing. And what he said, he reminded us of the sacrificial spirit of the early church. And it says, if we do not capture this, this move of the Spirit that the Holy Spirit has called and birthed the church in, then there is something that we will be missing. And what I would like to frame this, 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 this sacrificial spirit of the early church that he's talking about is about being a reconciling community. At Arabon, we define it as this. A reconciling community is a group of people linked by a common purpose and rhythm of life together, who acknowledge the death of brokenness in our world and actively receives the invitation from God to heal the brokenness of our world holistically from the inside out. See, it's not enough just to kind of like have a rhythm of life together. I mean, that's a community. But what's different about a Christian community understands that our world is broken. It is not just that it's broken out there, it's broken inside here. And God is inviting us to engage in the brokenness that is going out here, but the way that transformation happens is that people on the inside get transformed, and then out of that transformation of David Bailey moves to Evan, and out of Evan to you and to you and the people that you connect with, and then outside the four walls of the church, and then that is how we experience Christian transformation. So if you're in a situation where you feel like if those people over there would get their act together and we'd be in a bunch of better situation, then you might be starting in the wrong place. And so today, I would love to spend some time in the scriptures around Acts 2, 42 through 47. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I have organized my thoughts on this text around three themes I see. That the early church were faithful fanatics of Jesus. They were fearless freedom fighters. And they were focused family members. Could y'all repeat after me? Faithful fanatics, fearless freedom fighters, and then focused family members. All right, can y'all say it one more time like Jesus is real? Faithful fanatics, fearless freedom fighters, and focused family members. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, we just pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable 
in your sight. Lord, we pray that your spirit will come to illuminate the hearts, the mind, the gut, the essence, that we may love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we will learn how to love our neighbor as ourselves. We come against any spirit of condemnation, and Lord, I pray that your spirit of innovation will, 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 will flood this space so folks can see what is it that you're calling them to do to serve and be part of a reconciling community. And all of God's people say, amen. Now, we are in the midst of uh, football season, and uh, there are some serious uh, uh, football fans out there. Any football fans here? Anybody um, know who's going to win the Super Bowl? <laughs> Not the Chargers, somebody said. <laughs> you know, we got basketball fans. We have sport fans. And when you are a fan... When you're a fanatic, you orient your schedule to make sure that you can cheer for your team. You're like, LeBron James needs me to make sure he wins this game. And, you know, some of us are folks that, you know, might not be into um, sports. Any um, Gilmore Girl fans out there? Okay, okay, I see a couple of Gilmore Girl fans, you know. You know, when they went out of season and they were done and they had that reboot, they were like, I got to see what Rory is up to. You know, and, you know, some people might not be into Gilmore Girls. You know, um, we're in church, so don't confess, but, they, you know, any, all right, don't worry about this, okay. But, you know, um, Folks are like, I got to see the last episode of Game of Thrones. See, when you are a faithful fanatic, you orient your schedule, you prioritize the thing that you're a fanatic of. And people know that you're a faithful fanatic of the thing. But what are Christians in America and the United States known for being a faithful fanatic of? There was this book that came out uh, called... Un, uh, unchristian. And Barna did a study on what did people who weren't followers of Jesus think about Christians. And they said that Christians were known for one, what we were against, and our political ideology. But the question is, why aren't we known as being faithful fanatics of Jesus. See, that is the thing that we ought to be known about faithful fanatics of Jesus. See, when you're a faithful fanatic of Jesus, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, basically to the word of God and to fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. See, when you are a faithful fanatic of Jesus, you're giving yourself to fasting. You're giving yourself to prayer. You are giving yourself to the word of God. And people don't think that you were Clark Kent Christian. I don't know. Maybe people haven't watched Superman, but like, you know, like, you know, you Superman, like, at the moment, but you kind of like in disguise. Like, this is a sign of being a faithful fanatic of Jesus. And here's the thing about when you give yourself over to prayer, you give yourself to the word, when you give yourself over to fasting and, and the fellowship with the saints, it becomes like an addiction. It becomes a thing that you have to do. 
And this is something that one major problem that we have in our church in America right now is that folks aren't really faithful fanatics of Jesus. They're faithful fanatics of their news station, faithful fanatics of Instagram scrolling, faithful fanatics of all types of other things than being faithful fanatics of Jesus. So when you become a faithful fanatic of Jesus, out of that you become a fearless freedom fighter. You no longer only care about you and yours, you begin to care about other people. It says that all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. See, it's easy to read this particular text and put the 21st century context on this text instead of the first century context. So in the 21st century, you know, if Evan and I, I live in Richmond, Virginia. Evan's here in San Diego. If we wanted to say, like, he wanted to move to Richmond, I wanted to move to San Diego, we have a whole real estate infrastructure where we could just sell our house to each other as long as we can afford the house. Well, in the first century, they didn't have a system like that. If you had a house in the Roman Empire, you were, like, pretty set for life. I think the dynamic equivalent would be, like, having... For a really fat 401k or retirement plan. And so when they sell their house, it's almost like they're selling their retirement plan. And why? Because of the fact that they saw people in their community that had need, and they said, you know what? I need to make sure everybody, we need to make sure everybody's taken care of and not just me and mine's. You know, I have this really weird Forrest Gump life, and one time uh, I got invited, my wife and I got invited to go on a plantation in South Carolina. Let me just say I got reasons why I don't normally like going on plantations in South Carolina. <laughs> and the reason why I, we, my wife and I got invited because there was a friend of mine who was just reading Acts 2 and Acts 4. Uh, we have been in an intentional community in Richmond, Virginia, where we moved into an under-resourced, uh, poor uh, neighborhood and said, hey, what's it like us for to be the body of Christ in this poor neighborhood? And so we live, walk, and worship, like kind of in the same, like a one-mile radius. And, and there was a significant amount of poverty. We moved in, um, it was like 90% um, folks below the poverty line when we moved in 16 years ago. And she invited us down to her family's plantation in South Carolina. Um, she realized, just reading this text, that she ended up inheriting of a quarter of a million dollars just because of the fact that she was somebody's grandchild. And she realized that, you know, yeah, I had grades to go to the University of Virginia, but I could have also got accepted because my grandfather's name is on some of the buildings and there's some things that are happening there. And so, as she's living in the community, as she's in proximity with poverty, she realizes that there are some other people who have inherited obstacles because of who they were born and the color of their skin and the, and the opportunities that were obstacles in our country as late as, like, I mean, 
you could say 1968 or 1975, depending on what you're talking about. But a way to give you a context, the civil rights, it feels like a long time ago because in black and white photos, but my dad was 20 years old when Dr. King got assassinated. So he got the last civil rights law was passed when he was 20 years old. So he was born a U.S. citizen, but he didn't get his full rights as a U.S. citizen until he was 20 years old. So that has implications about like what my family was able to do and opportunities he was able to take. And, and, and so I'm the first generation of African-Americans born with our full rights. And so she saw that and just said, was reading this text and said, like, hey, what would it look like for me to give our inheritance to a group of, it was three other couples, to kind of start like a family trust and discern what to do to be able to kind of give, um, to be able to empower other folks who don't have access to that same type of uh, wealth transfer. And I want to read a email I got last year to somebody, a, a woman who uh, was doing every, she was a single mother, had uh, four or five kids, she was doing all that she could knew how to do to get her first home, to bring stability for her children. But the neighborhood that we were going to went under gentrification. And so the grant that she received was connected to the particular living in our neighborhood, but our neighborhood got so expensive that she couldn't afford to live there anymore. The place where she could afford was outside of the grant area, and so she lost some of her grant money. We heard about the situation through her caseworker, and I want to read two emails, one from her caseworker that was working through this process, and then the one from her. She said, Hi, thank you so much for your call this morning. I was truly overwhelmed by the generosity of this group of givers. God bless you all. I reached out to the lady to tell her of this blessing, and she broke down crying. We were crying and thanking God together over the phone. And, the, and she sent this email to us. She said, Dear Anonymous Giver, thank you for your generosity for assisting my children and me with the remaining deposit on my first new home. You, your gift brightened my day, and it will continue to be appreciated. I told my 70-year-old, and his response was, I had a feeling we were going to get that house, Mom. That's God. I'm truly a believer and receive your encouraging words of wisdom from God. I am so grateful, thankful, and blessed to receive such a gift. You are a blessing from God, and I also want you to know that a generous person like you will prosper. God will see to it that you too are rewarded bountiful blessings. This is what it means to be a fearless freedom fighter. I want to tell you two other stories. One is this guy, Don Flo, that's down in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Don Flo, um, he, his dad had a car shop. He knew that he was going to um, uh, take over his dad's car shop, so he went to the University of Virginia. He uh, uh, got a business degree, and after he got his undergrad, he said, hey, Dad, I want to do every single job in this car shop. 
I want to be the secretary. I want to be the mechanic. I want to be the accountant. I actually want to shadow you and do your, I want to get paid what they get paid. I want to actually practice the incarnation. And he was trying to walk in the shoes of everybody in his car shop because what he wanted to do was he wanted to be the kind of person uh, um, that got a chance to walk in the shoes of folks out of his faithfulness like to Jesus. And then he said, hey, I want to go to seminary so then I can like apply to understand the Bible and apply that level of theological uh, 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 rigor to how we do business. So he went to uh, Regent Seminary in Vancouver, came back, and this is like in the 1980s. He started to see these like different kind of um, uh, 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 biblical principles. Like it's 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 immoral. The Bible says this is moral to kind of advantage yourself in a business transaction when you have more knowledge than somebody else. He began to see things like Matthew 25 and and how you need to care for the least of these. And so he has a car sales company, and what he realized is that the most vulnerable person oftentimes could be the single mother on the car lot because, you know, she may oftentimes not know as much about cars, and then the, the car salesman knows a lot about cars and negotiates all day, every day, and he's like, if people get better prices based off the fact of their negotiation skills, that's not equitable. He saw that his blue-collar workers were unhealthy and, and they couldn't uh, um, uh, get a chance to, like, send their kids to college. And their executives, you know, uh, um, could, could make a lot of money and, and send their kids to college and do all kinds of things. And so what he did as a policy was he said, one, we're going to just give a regular price to everybody. Before CarMax started to do that, he was doing that and said, hey, here's our profit margin. Here's what it costs us. Here's the sticker price. No negotiation. But then he also said, if you make $70,000 or less, you get the most amount of benefits in the company. If you make $70,000 or more, the more cash you get, the less amount of benefits you get. Has anybody noticed in corporate America it doesn't work that way? See, he's a fearless freedom fighter because out of his love for Jesus. And then the last one of my friends, Oye and Chris Waddell, they both grew up in South Central L.A., grew up in the hood. Oye was a football player, uh, got a chance to get a Division I um, uh, scholarship and, like, made it out the hood. And, and Chris, uh, she was, like, super academic, smart, and made it out the hood. But what they did while they were in the hood, they realized that the guys on the street corner were running little mini corporations. They realized the hustling that they were doing, they were hustling in that way because of the fact they didn't have access to a different way of employment, but they were using tremendous amounts of business skills. And so what they started to do is say like, hey, what if we provided, like, folks aren't going to be able to go to Stanford and Harvard and do these business accelerators. What if we uh, provide that same opportunity for, for black and brown communities that don't have that same kind of access to university MBA educations? So they started something called Hustle Phoenix, where they do a business accelerator for folks and allow folks to engage in entrepreneurship. This is fearless freedom fighting. 
from all these different walks of life. And when you are a faithful fanatic of Jesus, you then become a fearless freedom fighter. You don't have to only be worried about yourself and your people. And what happens is your vision of family changes and you become a focused family member. It says that every day they contributed to meet together in the temple courts. I'm sorry. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all of God's people. Not just some of God's people, but all of God's people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. In order to really understand this text, you really need to understand about the miracle of Pentecost. See, what happened was Jesus died on the cross. He resurrected. And these Jewish believers who his disciples were all Jewish, they knew that there was going to be a Messiah that was going to come. It wasn't just a spiritual leader. The Messiah was a political leader. And so when they knew that Jesus was the Messiah, they asked Jesus the question. Um, they were under Roman Empire. They were under the Roman oppression as the people of God. And they said, hey, Jesus, when are you going to make Israel great again? Some of y'all will get that on the way home. And Jesus said, hey, you're asking too small of a question. See, yes, your people are my people. But your people aren't only my people. Like, there are folks that you, I can't even explain it to you. So what I want you to do is I want you to go to Jerusalem. I want you to pray. And I'm going to give you power of the Holy Ghost that will help you to proclaim the kingdom of God in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other most parts of the world. And as they were praying, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they were praying, and they all of a sudden, uh, tongues of fire came down, and they started speaking in tongues. There were people from Africa, and they were from uh, um, Arab countries, and from Asia, and from Europe, and all of these different countries, and these different ethnic groups were represented, and they're there in this one uh, upper room, and, and they're in this upper room, and they are speaking their language, but they're understanding one another. See, with the miracle of Pentecost is, I grew up Pentecostal, and I thought a lot of times the miracle of Pentecost was about speaking in tongues. It was the manifestation of being able to kind of speak in tongues. But the miracle of Pentecost is not about speaking different. It's about hearing differently. See, these brothers and sisters did not have to do unity through assimilation. They did unity and diversity, and this was a work of the Holy Spirit. They didn't have to try to code switch to order to be understand. They got a chance to be who God called them to be, and the Holy Spirit helped them out. So, as I bring this to a close, I just want to say, you might be asking a question, hey, what does this look like? What does it look like for our church to be a reconciling community? And I just want to tell you a story about a friend of mine I met in college. Uh, named Chris Lee. Uh, um, Chris um, and I were uh, friends in college. We met about 18, 19 years old. Um, he was from um, 
the Tidewater area of Virginia. I'm from Richmond, Virginia. We were two young guys uh, in college, loving Jesus. He was an art major. I was a music major. And, you know, we were just trying to uh, um, be Christians. You know, we were both involved in urban inner city ministry at two different ministries, and we just wouldn't hang out. Uh, college wasn't working out well for him, and so he, he decided to go into the Air Force, go to the military, and he got stationed up in New Jersey. He got stationed up in New Jersey, and he uh, met this beautiful Korean woman, and she, uh, Kim, she, she migrated from South Korea when she was about 10 years old. And so they literally met within months. I think they got, we're going to get married within three to six months. And so she decided to call home and say, hey, I met this really amazing guy named Chris Lee. And they were like, you know, oh, tell me about him. Let's go, oh, okay. Oh, that's great. And then we fell in love, and, and she said, okay, oh, his name's Chris Lee? I'm really glad that you're marrying a Lee. And so, <laughs> so when they got a picture of him, they were like, he's no Lee. He's no Lee. It's really interesting because his definition of Lee from Virginia and her definition of Lee from South Korea are very different. And this is kind of a microcosm that as you become more of a reconciled community and you become more of a diverse community, diversity itself doesn't lead towards reconciliation. Diversity doesn't even guarantee reconciliation. Diversity guarantees conflict. Diversity increases the potential of conflict because you got different definitions of what things mean. But when you have the practice of reconciliation, what begins to happen is that things merge together and there's a, a birth of all kinds of new stuff. When you go in their household, you see African-American culture and you see Korean culture. Not because of them necessarily like we did three things your way this time and three things this way. But out of love, there's all types of things that emerge. And, you know, here is an example of this. Here's their th three beautiful girls. Oftentimes, like, when you are engaging in love, there's all types of things that God can birth out of this. And so what is the point of this sermon? It's to make babies. What a reconciling community is are people who, out of the faithful fanaticism of Jesus, they become fearless freedom fighters, they become focused family members, and that is pregnant with potential for God to do stuff that gives God the glory to do things that only God can do. So my prayer for you all is that you don't take your clues from the secular left or the secular right, but you find a third way that's kingdom-oriented, that is rooted in Acts to the birth of the church, that we will have you all be a reconciling community on earth as it is in heaven here in San Diego. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, 
as we've spent some time here with Acts 2 and even um, that it's going to spend some time over the next year really just rooted in the book of Acts, I, I pray the presence of God would be just manifest significantly here. And not just only in the worship service and not just only in the small groups and the, the house groups, but, but in the way people make their vocational decisions and the way that folks uh, um, make decisions about their money and they make decisions about their time and how they share resources, Lord. That this church will be known as people that follow the way of Jesus in all types of areas, but particularly as we are in such polarizing times where so many Christians are being discipled by political ideology, I pray let it not be so here at Park Hill Church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.